I'm James Brian Smith. Welcome to the Things of a Podcast. You're listening to episode 10. So every now and then I have a guest on the Things Above podcast to have what I call a Things Above conversation. And today, my guest on the Things Above podcast is, that's a drum roll, John Ortberg. John, welcome. How fun is this? <laughs> it's great to hear your voice, my friend. It is great. You know, we have known each other a long time. Do you know how long we've known each other? Uh, gosh, it's got to be more than 20 years. It is more. It's, this is an anniversary year for our friendship, John. It's 30 oh, years. That's incredible. 1988 Lake Avenue Church in Pasadena. And you didn't get me anything. <laughs> I, it's in the mail. I would think uh, at least some old Richard Foster book or something. <laughs> yeah, I'll dig one out. You know, that was, that, that was the first uh, Renovari National Conference, and you were a plenary speaker. I was. We were young pups in our late 20s. But you gave a talk on community that was it blew everybody away. And the next day I gave a talk on spiritual formation, spiritual formation in small groups. And it was a dud. Um, but after the conference, ended, I, I, I doubt that very much <laughs> after the conference ended, this woman came up. I, I knew her from a church in, on the East coast. She'd come all the way to this conference and she comes up to me and when she sees me, she says, Jim, wasn't this a great conference? I said, yeah. He goes, she said, boy, that John Ortberg, his talk on community. I went to get a tape of his talk and all his tapes had sold out. But they had lots of yours, Jim. So I got one of yours. So <laughs> the beginning of Ortberg envy for me. Well, uh, just one more <laughs> wonderful opportunity for spiritual formation. It was. It was. Yeah, I, I went deep into prayer at that moment. Well, John, I'm so glad to have this time with you. You and I have a bunch in common, little tennis players and writing books and stuff. But probably the, the biggest one I know I'm glad I share with you is to have mentored, uh, been mentored by the late, great Dallas Willard. And uh, talk a little bit about his impact on you. Obviously, the new book, which we're going to get into, is is brilliant. But um, talk about Dallas's input impact on you. Um, you know, it really began uh, around thirty years ago when I had uh, read his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, and uh, I had felt frustrated myself about my inability to grow spiritually and not figuring out how change happens. I, I had been at Fuller Seminary and I was actually in the School of Psychology because that cluster of questions around what is the human condition, what's human nature, how do people change, why is it hard, always seems so important and interesting. And it was when I picked up that book and read Dallas that his thesis was that authentic transformation really is possible if we're willing to do one thing, and that is to arrange our lives around those practices and activities that Jesus engaged in to be constantly at home with and receiving life from his father. And when I read that sentence, it struck me. Someone has thought about this. Someone has figured things out, learned things way beyond what I have. And that book outside of the Bible has had a bigger impact on me than any other book. And then not long after that, I, I had written to Dallas because it turns out he lived not far away. I was living in Simi Valley then. And, um, uh, asked if we could get together and meeting him and talking with him, I realized that uh, this is somebody who, as good as his mind is, uh, his heart, his life was better than his mind. And I wanted some of that. Yeah. And that, and I, my, same experience for me. I mean, just being around him, that person uh, is, 
you know, there's a pop song out right now in the, the, I think it's called, I like me better when I'm with you. Uh. And, and I think that I felt like when I left Dallas's presence, I was better. I mean, I don't know how that rubs off, but he just, yeah, his person and John, your work has been fantastic. I, I think you were the first one to coin the phrase, uh, what you do is Dallas for dummies. <laughs> and I, uh, I feel the same way. You know, I think both of us have tried to to take his brilliance and bring it down because he's pretty hard. I mean, Divine Conspiracy is a tough read, but mm -hmm. boy, your latest book, Eternity is Now in Session, is fantastic. I could go on and on about about it and, and waste our time praising it. <laughs> but I just want, can I ask you a couple questions? Would that be all right? Oh, it'd be wonderful, please. Okay. So the clear thesis of the book is seen in the title is that eternity is now in session. And I find that I, I fully believe it 100%, and I, I know what the importance of it, but I find that that notion is a huge challenge to the nearly universal way people look at eternal life and heaven. Um, why is that? I mean, why is that, that it's what seems so obvious, and your book just nails it, is just so un misunderstood by people? Yeah, I, I think... Uh, it's always the case that clarity and vision leaks and drifts, and that's why uh, when Jesus was around, uh, so much of what he did was to correct inaccurate uh, visions of who God is. You have heard it said, but I say to you, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? I think that always happens, and people uh, pop up now and again that help us see things better. And for many of us, Dallas was one of those, but Dallas would be the first thing to, to first one to say, this is not at all about him. This is about uh, reality and the vision of reality and about Jesus. And so eternal life has become one of those phrases like salvation or Christian or saving faith that is largely misunderstood. And most people think eternal life is something that you have to wait until you die to participate in. Well, John, the stuff in the book is just, uh, it's radical and life altering. And I know that, you know, when I came across some of these truths through Dallas, it just, it turned my world upside down. I thought, where was this the whole time? But I, I, I got to admit, I really love the Monty Python reference because that scene, you know, answer me these questions three, explain to the listeners how, how that's an illustration of a really common way of understanding where you go and getting the questions right. Uh, the way that I grew up understanding the gospel, I thought of the gospel as the announcement of the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. And um, so it's just this goofy picture of this bridge keeper. And uh, as long as you're able to give the correct answer to the big question, they have to let you across the bridge. And I really, as odd as it sounds, nobody used that phrase, minimal entrance requirements. But that really was the understanding was if you were to die, um, how do you know for sure that they could not keep you out of heaven? And I thought that that's what the gospel was. The problem, of course, is uh, if you look through the gospels themselves and ask, where did Jesus ever say, now I'm going to give you the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. He never says anything like that. No, you can't make him say that. It's not there. And, you know, John 17, 3 becomes a really important verse um, establishing the book because it's about eternal life. I remember when Dallas taught on that, and he said, let's just look at that. And you read it and go, and this is eternal life. And you think, this isn't about heaven after you die. 
it's a quality of life now. And yet that's what you do so well in this book. You talk about it's a quality of life now. It's like it, it has come to us. Heaven has mm. come to us. Mm. And uh, talk a little bit of the importance of that idea. Yeah. Um, another contrast. Uh, uh, another goofy show when I was a kid, Star Trek, when people were in trouble, they would sometimes pray to Scotty, beam me up. Right. And I used to think sometimes that that was kind of the Christian prayer. The world is a mess. It's going to be torched. So God, beam me up, get me you know, out of here, up there. And uh, again, I grew up uh, knowing about saying the Lord's Prayer, but I had never actually thought about the words, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that Jesus's plan and what he taught us to pray for and to work towards was not God, get me out of here so I can go up there, but God make up there, come down here. May your will be done. And Dallas would often say, God's kingdom is the range of God's effective will. It is where things are the way that God wants them to be. Uh, and Jesus's plan and prayer for us was, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Starting uh, on the, in this tiny little part of the earth that is my body and my brain and my mind and then my relationships, um, my, my workplace, my family, my relationship with Jim Smith and these moments and these words that we're exchanging right here. I can be praying in this moment, God, your kingdom come right here in the middle of these words so that this kingdom is integrated into your kingdom. And that is the great purpose of life is to be a part of God's plan to bring up there down here. Yeah, and that's the that obvious reversal. I, you know, actually, I never thought about like thy, thy kingdom come. It's right there. <laughs> I prayed it a million times. Thanks for that. That's that's. I'll use that one. That's good. Um, well, know, it was kind of Jesus's idea, but oh, yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll I'll give not John. I'll give Jesus credit. Um, well, the gospel of Jesus, as you state really clearly, is is the availability, the access to the kingdom now. But you point out in the book that there are some who push back and say. Well, the world's still a mess, and I know that you know there there are actual Bible scholars who hold that view. I think John Bright held the view that the kingdom obviously is not here because the world's still a mess. How do you respond to that claim? Um, uh, my best understanding of it is it is certainly true that the world is still a mess, and and what's happened is that the kingdom of God is available and is present but it is present in the midst of a lot of other kingdoms. So if we think about a kingdom as a system of personal power, and that means everybody has a kingdom, you have a little Jim Smith kingdom and I have a little kingdom. And when, when babies are born and they begin to grow up and they say words like no or mine, they're learning. They have a kingdom. Those words are kingdom words. Your kingdom is uh, where your will is in charge. And the problem with our world is all of those kingdoms merge and intersect and they form neighborhoods and corporations and cultures, and they've all been uh, corrupted by sin. They've all been tainted by sin. And, uh, and God is allowing, for good reason, those kingdoms to go on, even though they are sin-soaked and pain-filled. But now in the person of Jesus, he has caused his kingdom to invade uh, 
this broken kingdom of the earth and to become available to people. The day will come one day, and this is where resurrection comes in, um, when there will be no other kingdoms competing with the kingdom of God, but every kingdom that exists will be integrated with it. So that, that day when all suffering will be over and God's kingdom will reign without resistance, that day is coming and we look forward to it. But it is no less true that that kingdom is present and available now, even in the midst of rival kingdoms. Exactly. And Hebrews 1, right? It's, we, we have this unshakable kingdom. Right? I remember Dallas would often say, look, churches come and go, but the kingdom is unshakable. It is, it is a reality. And I love that, John, even in the midst of the other kingdoms, which clearly God is allowing to happen because, well, that he didn't make robots. Right? So on page 135 of the book, you talk about Richard Hayes, and he was my favorite professor in seminary, by the way. Huh. And so I absolutely loved it because I remember many years ago when he talked about the objective genitive of uh, Galatians 2.20, I live by the faith of the Son of God, not I live by the faith in the Son of God. And, and I love that you're showing the implications of that. But for the listeners, you know, what's at stake in that little change of a word? Yeah, it's enormous because uh, uh, we live at the mercy of our ideas. And uh, again, Dallas just helped me to see this, but it's a, a very old idea. But uh, uh, we all have in our, our minds a mental map about the way things are. So uh, I believe in gravity and I never have to say, no, I'm going to show people how deeply I'm committed to gravity. I never violate that belief because I simply know that that is a description of the way things are. And uh, uh, Jesus had a mental map about how things are. And that mental map included the reality that he was constantly at home with and watched over and loved by his father and that's part of why he could live essentially without fear. And um, so for me to come to not just have faith in Jesus and to believe that Jesus was right about stuff, but for me to come to have the same mental map in my head that Jesus had in his, for me to believe as deeply that I am cared for from one moment to the next by the Father as Jesus believed that, would mean then that I would begin to behave the way that Jesus would behave. And it would be effortlessly because it would just be flowing from the way that the world looks to me. Mm. Um, it's so interesting. Another phrase that I think we often get wrong is the phrase saving faith. And in the tradition where I grew up, that's often defined, although again, not in these words, as what's the minimal amount you have to believe so that you get into heaven when you die. That's saving faith. And there would be debates about what the content of that is or is not. Instead of understanding, no, 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 saving faith is when my faith, the way that I understand reality to operate, is the same as Jesus's mental map about how reality operates, so that my whole life will look the way that Jesus's life would look if he was in my body. And that is saving faith, because a saved life will emerge out of it. Ah, uh, that's great. Yeah, the mental map, or Paul would say the mind of Christ, that's, that's what we're getting. That's the faith of Jesus. So, John, I got one last question, and it's, it was a great segue into the, what I want to do. So, I follow you on Twitter, man. <laughs> And uh, you you quoted 
uh, Dallas the other day in one of your tweets. It's in you. This is what you quoted: "God is the kind of being who, if you place yourselves in His hands in trust, will ensure that nothing can ever happen to you that will make you say, I'm afraid' or I don't have enough.'" Mm. That's that's what the mental map of Jesus, right? He, the storm in the boat, and he's like, "You guys, what are you doing?" I mean, um, that's brilliant, right? But you know, some can push back and go, "Wow, it's still a scary world." I mean, like sometimes I don't always have everything, but that's what you learn. Uh, I think that God is that kind of being. I just want to, I want to believe it more. You know, I want to live into that more. Another wonderful thing Dallas used to say is one way of thinking about spiritual formation is it's coming to believe with my whole body what I say I believe in my mind. Mm. And I, I couldn't agree more. It's like right now, mm. uh, I, I might think I'm safe when I'm, I jumped out of a plane a few months ago. Our staff arranged for me to do that to illustrate a sermon point, which was. I read that. <laughs> and um, I believed that I was safe. Uh, but when I jumped out of that plane, uh, my palms were not certain that I was safe and my <laughs> armpits were not certain that I was safe. So part of my body wasn't there yet. And uh, that is a wonderful way of thinking about uh, the development of saving faith. It's when my whole body, including my palms and my armpits, believe no matter what happens to me, no matter what anybody thinks of me, no matter sickness, cancer, death itself, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Uh, and I'm a long ways away from believing that fully, but I hope and pray that I'm on my way. And I know that is the only good way. Mm. So listeners get out and, and, uh, and purchase eternity is now in session with Tyndale press. It's just every, I loved every page, John, thank you for your ministry, your work, your writing, your speaking, um, your tweeting, I guess I should say even, um, it's been a blessing. Thanks for being on this this podcast. Uh, it's 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 kind of a partnership, Jim, over many many years, and I'm very grateful for this episode of it. Thank you. Amen. Thank you, brother. Blessings. I hope you enjoyed this things above conversation with our guest John Ortberg. Thanks, John, for doing that. Do go out and get his new book. Eternity is now in session. It is fantastic. I hope you join me next week for episode 11. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast at ApprenticeInstitute.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. Until next time, keep setting your minds on things above. My hope is that one day, if you're asked, what's on your mind? Your answer will be things above.